you know, I think for for problems like human trafficking and uh, and other kind of poverty based social issues, it, they they kind of feel overwhelming, <laughs> and 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 I think they overwhelm us oftentimes to the point where we're we're paralyzed and we don't know what to do. What can I do? Uh, you know, for for my story, um, I decided to to start a nonprofit that is full of investigators, and we go undercover and we find these kids. That's not for everybody. But everybody actually can do something. You're listening to the Traffic and Funnel Show. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Traffic and Funnel Show here with your host, Chris Evans and Taylor Welch. And today is actually a special episode because we have a guest. And this is pretty rare. We have Matt Parker from Exodus Road. How's it going, Matt? Going well. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you, my man. So, um, Matt, why don't you just real quick, just give everybody just a two-minute story about you, about Exodus Road, and then I'm really excited to jump into this topic and extract a lot of information from you today. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, the Exodus Road is a nonprofit organization or charity, and we specialize in identifying victims of human trafficking and then collecting evidence of their slavery or exploitation and then working with law enforcement to conduct a raid and rescue operation, ideally arresting the traffickers. And we've been doing that now for about 10 years, just Mm -hmm. over 10 years, and have rescued just around 1,500 uh, men, women, and boys and girls, and arrested around 500 traffickers. Wow, that is amazing. Uh, you know, a lot of people I find Taylor and I personally have been involved in supporting anti-human trafficking organizations, and I think a lot of people, Matt, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. They don't understand how pervasive the issue is and how big the issue is, not only in in countries outside of the U.S. but also inside of the U.S. Um, what is, do you agree with that? Is that something that you see when you're traveling, you're talking to folks? Um, and really how big is the problem? Both where you're at, cause you're in Thailand, right? That's where you're primarily operating. Uh, well, we, we have one of our large regional offices in Thailand, but we operate in India and also Latin America. And we do some projects here mm. in the United States as well. Uh, but that's a good point you bring up, you know, and I, just to answer that, I do see that all the time. I think, you know, the, the nature of human trafficking is that it's it's a hidden crime, right? It's not so obvious uh, as like theft might be. You know, the, this is a a situation where, um, really, in a large sense, impoverished people are trying to find work, and there are other people, brokers that are willing to leverage their need for employment and exploit that and mm-hmm. trick these people um, into prostitution or into a labor environment where they're not paid a fair wage. And there's there's just really not a lot of organic mechanisms to protect these people. Um, and human trafficking, it's just a difficult crime to prove. Uh, you have to have a mountain of evidence to do it. And so uh, it is this kind of pervasive social ill that's taking place right underneath 
our noses, so to speak. Um, and I do agree that a lot of people are unaware of the, the scope of human trafficking. So for example, globally today, the ILO, the International Labor Organization, estimates that there are 40.8 million modern day slaves. Wow. So that that's like, that's a lot of people. That's an overwhelming number of people trapped in some form of labor uh, slavery or sexual slavery, and, and they're underneath these exploitive mechanisms of force, fraud, or coercion. So that's kind of what makes up the scope. And here in the United States, it's a problem too. You'd mentioned that. And uh, every year in, here in the United States, around 100,000 children are caught up in some trafficking mechanism. And that could be online through Facebook or Twitter or, or some new uh, app that, that kids are chatting on. And then pedophiles and perpetrators will lure these kids out of their safety net um, and then exploit them. And that's happening here in significant numbers. I mean, it's kind of surprising to hear that number, even for me, and I, I do this for a living. So it, it's a global issue. There's really no country that is untouched by this problem. Mm. So real quick, if I can hop in here, yeah. um, just all of our podcasts are family friendly. We don't, you know, we make sure that we protect the the content of our show. But I, I, I want to give a warning real fast to people who are listening with children or who have like just FYI, uh, Taylor is about to take us there because I feel like what's so easy is for us here in our the safety and confines of our businesses and workplace and our homes to this almost becomes fairy taleish and it becomes storybook and it becomes like cinematic Marvel, not real, disconnected. And when we sat down for lunch and you started telling me how these guys get the children to the cities and then the process of how they really it's economic slavery. It's all of this coercion. I kind of feel like you should tell that. And because there's a lot of entrepreneurs and, and business owners when they, when they understand like the economics of how this is working and it's the real deal, it's not just a story to raise money. I think people are going to be moved by it. Like yeah. I was. And if Chris, you're okay with that, I just want to kind of not to take us heart rated, but like, what's real? Like what's actually happening? Cause nobody's reporting on what's actually happening here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thank, thank you for that. <laughs> I think that, you know, this topic is a heavy, dark topic, right? And, uh, even when my wife and I started to get involved in this, we, we didn't realize how deep the rabbit hole really went as far as exploitation yeah. and what was happening. And, um, you know, I guess just to tell a little bit of that story, when, when I was in, um, I was living in and working in Northern Thailand and, and we just heard, we weren't in Thailand uh, to fight human trafficking. We were uh, running a children's home uh, there at the time there was 48 young girls in this children's home and, and the home really provided education for impoverished girls. But in doing that and in kind of leading that effort, I began to hear these rumors in the community. Uh, Taylor, which is what we talked about over lunch, you know, these rumors that brokers or Johns would go to these kind of remote villages on the borders of, of Laos and Burma and uh, offer employment, uh, but they would only do that to the, the attractive young women or, or girls. 
Um, and then, of course, the rumor in the community that I heard was that these girls were then, after being recruited or tricked, they would be placed in a vehicle and driven to a large city where they would then discover that there was no job for them. There was, the promise that was made to them for employment was, uh, it was fake. It wasn't a real job. And they would then learn that they would be sold into prostitution. Um, you know, and as that kind of took place, you know, a lot of times people would, will ask me, well, why can't they just run away or call mom and dad to come get them or that kind of thing. And what most people don't understand here in the West is, um, we're really privileged in lots of ways. And, and a lot of these farming communities on these border regions, they're very poor. They don't have cell phones or, or the ability to track their kids. They, uh, these girls also, they're, they're threatened, right? So if they, if they do try and run away or get help, they're going to be abused severely, uh, physically. Um, we've read instances of, of, mutilation, like, like fingers being cut off. I mean, just really graphic stuff that mm. takes place. So they're scared. And if you can imagine being 13, 14 years old and caught up in a mechanism like that, what skills would you really have to, to, to rectify your situation? You know, when I was 13 and 14 years old, uh, I would have no skills and I was an educated young man. A lot of these girls are from the village communities where there's no schooling or very little. So um, the other thing that's kind of PG-13 that's difficult is uh, once they kind of lure these children out of these uh, village communities or impoverished circumstances, depending on the situation, there's, there's sometimes what's called a breaking period where they're abused systematically, severely for the first week. It's about a seven-day period. Um, and it, it, the intent of that type of abuse is to break their spirit like you would a wild animal, like a horse, you know, that you're trying to, to train. And then when they're ready, they turn these girls out onto the street. Um, and it's just such a, a, a disturbing concept that any human would do this to another human, right? Um, and so for my wife and I, we began to understand and, and learn more about what was taking place in Southeast Asian region uh, to millions of kids in, in that part of the world. And oftentimes, you know, you will see these, these kids uh, on a street corner or, um, you know, begging for, for money. A lot of times those are beggar rings. It's, it's a criminal syndicate systematically moving people and enslaving them to, to beg for money or, or prostitute. And we kind of, the good men and women of the world, we kind of walk right by them, you know because our focus is elsewhere and we make these assumptions about them. Like they're, they're on that street corner knowing and willingly, like they desire to be there because they're poor, they're trying to make money. And we really uh, don't ever entertain the idea that they might be slaves, that there's somebody controlling them, threatening them, and that they don't have the power or capacity to leave uh, that situation. But real quick, like Chris, he was talking to me about lunch about like even they have to pay back the cost that it takes for them to be bused into the cities. And then there's a daily interest. So even if they do get free, then they can come after them economically. Just a wacko messed up type of enslavement, right? Yeah, the uh, 
we, we call that debt bondage. That's kind of the common phrase uh, in this space that people use. And it's very common. Uh, the major, I would say the majority of girls, young girls and boys that we rescue are caught up in some form of debt bondage. So during the recruitment process, uh, a lot of these impoverished kids or men and women, you know, they don't have the money for the bus ticket, the airline ticket to get to where the promised job is, right? And so the trafficker will say, hey, no problem, I'll loan it to you. And then when they realize the job is not what was promised and they are like, hey, I'm, I, I, wanna, I don't want to do that. One of the tactics that traffickers use is now they'll say, well, you owe me a debt. Mm. And there's interest on that debt. Um, and so, again, you kind of have to come back, you know, for, from the Western perspective, we're like, no, we're getting a lawyer. We're going to court. <laughs> but you have to understand that these people that are caught up in this often don't understand their rights. They, they don't have any cash. They don't have any money at all. They're desperately poor. And so they, they're oftentimes caught under an economic type slavery that perhaps they could actually fight in the court system, but they have no capacity to know how to do that. And um, even down to the types of visas that you can get a girl uh, or boy to come into a country legally on a short-term work visa, just because you have a visa doesn't mean you're not under debt bondage, right? Because the kid doesn't have the money for the visa or the process. So the, the economics of it is one additional amount of control. Traffickers want to control their, their people, right? They want to put them under duress and constantly keep them in this balance of tension of, hey, I'm going to let you earn a little bit of money to send back home. Um, I'm going to let you keep a little bit of money so you can buy some nice clothes, but I'm keeping the lion's share of it and you're constantly under threat. I rescued a, well, we, I met a girl undercover just a few weeks ago and uh, this rarely happens, but she leans over to me almost immediately and she says, I must escape this place. We were in this small, dark alley community in a neighborhood and there was probably 30 girls for sale in the open street. And this one particular girl, she looked uh, younger to me. And so I, I sat down with her and she immediately comes out with this exact scenario. She's like, I must escape this place. And I'm like, tell me about that. You know, how, how can I help you? And she's like, the eyes of my boss are always on me. And so that's just this graphic picture of what is it like to have to be under duress, to be under some amount of constant threat and to, to feel as a young child, like I, I can't actually have a private moment um, to escape or, or, or do anything for my help. So how old was she? Uh, she turned out to be 19 um, and she's free today, which is awesome. And she actually participated in uh she didn't know that she's doing this, but she helped the Exodus Road uh, create a target package, which is what we do. We collect intelligence of human trafficking, deliver that to law enforcement. And so she was able to be a part of the evidence gathering process for us. And law enforcement are pursuing that case right now. What's the what's the youngest age you've had to deal with? Uh, seven months old. We've rescued kids as young as seven months. Um, and those are are not being sold for sexual reasons. Those kids are often trafficked and placed in the lap of another trafficked victim. 
uh, to create a begging environment. So they'll sit on a street corner with a, a seven-month-old in their lap, uh, and they use them as props. They often drug those babies so that they're sleeping, and then they panhandle. But we've we've rescued girls as seven months old. And then what happens when you rescue those babies or young kids? You know, that's I get that question all the time, and and it's such a great question. Ninety percent of the time, maybe ninety-five percent of the time. Survivors of human trafficking are placed in government shelters. Um, and there's a few real reasons why. I mean, you know, there's a lot of private aftercare in the world um, that, that's doing amazing work. Um, however, the majority of survivors, governments don't want to place them into private aftercare. And they don't want that because uh, there's certain amounts of corruption, right? that have been involved in protecting the criminal syndicate. A lot of times law enforcement are involved in even the transit of these girls from one place to another because they're getting mm -hmm. bribes, they're getting payment. And so governments are concerned that, you know, a nonprofit, if they got a hold of that information, that they would play the role of a watchdog and kind of tell the world that this, this country is complicit in this type of crime. And so they try to control that narrative. A lot of governments do by, by placing survivors in government shelters through the Department of Social Welfare and, and to kind of control the narrative. But also a lot of countries, uh, you know, they're, they're really they don't want to put girls in an environment where like most private care institutions are religious based. And so. For example, in Thailand, it's a Buddhist country, and they don't want to place girls necessarily in a Christian aftercare shelter or or another religious uh, institution. So there's all these kind of factors uh, that most key stakeholders in this fight don't understand that that just because we were supporting law enforcement and rescuing a survivor of trafficking, we don't actually get to tell the police where to put her. The government, through the Department of Social Welfare, will place them most of the time in government shelter. And some of those are okay. You know, some of those shelters are, are good shelters, but some of them aren't. And so what we do is we hire social workers to case manage survivors, make sure they, they get uh, quality care, you know, a bed, good food, hygiene products, that they go to the judiciary for court. That's a really big challenge. A lot of survivors don't want to take the stand because they're afraid. And then we try our best to follow them all the way back to their home village. Uh, if home is a safe place to go. And a lot of that's in partnership with the Department of Social Welfare as well. Just one thing to tag on to that, because I think that this is important, especially as the primary listenership of the show is probably religious to some extent in you know one way or another. But a lot of the funding opportunities they've missed out on because they won't necessarily witness to people while they're inside of uh, the shops. Because... It's a bit of manipulation. It's like, they'll do anything. They'll be like, yes, whatever. Like whatever I need to say to get me out of here and won't name names or anything like that. But there's several religious institutions who have millions of dollars, not to beat up on anybody who have just been like, well, we're not going to donate money because you won't witness to them while they're in slavery. And I think that that's a massive mistake and it's a massive error. And it's why business owners really need to come through and do their jobs when the biggest organizations who, whose main job is to support this kind of stuff, they're dipping out for petty religious issues. Obviously, everyone's on the same team, but part of the reason that 
we've chosen to partner with you guys is simply because of how you partner with the governments in these countries. Can you speak just a little bit on that? Just talk about how you guys have chosen to partner with these countries. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, there are other groups out there that do similar work to the Exodus Road. There's not many, though. And there's more kind of springing up all the time, but but I only really know of three or four that that kind of operate in a similar way. But we have differentiators. And, and one of the biggest ones, what you described, Taylor, it's it's this idea that, um, you know, the Exodus Road, we when we go into a country, it's really about a two-year process. It's not a fast thing. And, and a lot of times I talk about fast food charity and how, uh, you know, a lot of people want solutions to complex justice issues, you know, cheap and fast, like fast food. And um, that's not a realistic approach to a systematic uh, criminal syndicate or, or, or global issue. We're going to have to be in this for the long haul. And so one of the differentiators that we have at the Exodus Road is we actually hire and train local nationals and we mm. form a legal entity or whether it's a company or a foundation in the countries we operate. And we work first and foremost in partnership with and collaboratively with law enforcement, the judiciary, with other nonprofits in the community. So before we even start doing investigations, we sit down with other organizations and just basically ask this one simple question, you know, how can we help? You know, we don't want to be in a country where we're not needed. The problem is massive uh, traffickings in every country in the world. And so for us, you know, this is not about, uh, you know, pushing our way into an environment. We really want to create a relationship with law enforcement and government where we're invited, where we can leverage our expertise in covert investigations to support what they're doing. And there's this kind of misnomer. You know, we nonprofits jobs are not to replace government entities. You know, we're not law enforcement. We have zero arrest authority. The only success we can really have is through a type of partnership. So for us, that looks like two years of an investment, a relational investment, where we meet with law enforcement, we train law enforcement, we give them cases of human trafficking, we observe if they sweep that case under the rug or if they execute on that rescue operation. And then from that, we derive a list of trusted officials and then not trusted officials. You don't get that overnight. That takes years to build. Um, so part of why we're so successful is we, we have a list of law enforcement we trust who we have this battle rhythm with. And we have local nationals who speak the local language, understand the culture, and are able to attain certain amounts of intelligence very quickly that as a foreigner would take me a much longer time to get if I ever got it. Uh, there's a lot of nuance uh, to these languages as far as uh, human trafficking in certain establishments. And if you don't know the language really, really well, you're going to miss a lot of that. So there's other groups out there that will just kind of send teams in of Americans uh, and kind of make it seem like, oh, we're these strong Navy SEAL type guys and we're just going to go and rescue kids. Uh, but then they get on a plane and they leave. Um, which is really where the hard stuff begins, is making sure that these kids aren't purchased back out of a corrupt environment, that they can actually go to court and testify, ideally. But most importantly, that the arrest takes place and those girls are placed in, in quality aftercare shelter. And so for the Exodus Road, we have staff on the ground in each country of operation who are making sure that those things take place. Um, I'm gonna ask you a few intense questions. Okay. Um, and again, if you guys have 
kids around, I would imagine that you should go ahead and pause and let them leave the room. But I want to ask you a question about ages, uh, frequency, and then I want to bring it home to the States. So what is, what's the youngest age that you have seen maybe on average where these boys and girls are taken as sex slaves? So that's question number one. And then what, what is the frequency that you see that they essentially have to service people? Yeah. So the average age uh, for girls and boys who are getting into this is 12 to 13. That's where they begin starting into their, their traffic. Originally, a lot mm-hmm. of the commercial red light districts around the world, uh, you'll see 15 to 16 year olds, uh, much younger than that. They won't put them out to market, uh, in a very public venue because they're so young. Uh, they're afraid of, uh, retribution, uh, from groups like ours, but also, you know, they run the risk of, of legal action. So, I would say the average age, though, of their first exploitation is around 12 for, for sex slavery. We've seen girls as young as seven being sold for sex, um, and we've rescued those girls. Um, the frequency, it varies by country. The average would be 10 times a day. So 10 times a day, they're being sold for around $45 in Southeast Asia. Uh, in Latin America, it's, it's about $30. In India, it's as cheap as $1.50. Um, so high, high volumes of exposure. And of course there's diseases to, to consider here. Uh, at the Exodus road, we kind of look at a case in terms of, of a certain components. One of them is restricted movement. Um, some of these girls who are really, really young in India, for example, we've done cases where, uh, a 12 year old girl has not seen sunlight for 30 days. She's mm-hmm. been locked in this back room and men will actually take a, a number and stand in a queue. And she had to service up to 50 men a day. And each guy had 15 minutes with her. It was really, really short. But I would say that's, that's a, a, an awful thing to imagine. And, and I'm thankful we were able to rescue her. But the average would be around 10 times a day, uh, girls and boys are servicing clients. 12 years old, 10 times a day. It's, it's a shame that so many people don't have an awareness of this. And so it's something that we feel an obligation, at least to our tribe, to our people to build an awareness of, because I've got a daughter, she's 16. I've got three boys that range uh, nine to 13. And it's very real. Now, let me, let's talk about stateside because a lot of people think oh it's just india oh it's just thailand oh it's just asia oh it's just africa whatever right but people don't realize how again prevalent it is it's happening here what are you seeing stateside and what are you concerned about what should parents be looking out for in regards to their own kids yeah great questions you know here in the united states um you know there's a couple of different main categories that, that we're aware of that take place. One of them is kids who run away from home um, for, for a completely different reason. You know, they're not wanting to find prostitution. That's not, of course not. There are kids that are unhappy at home and they run away and uh, they, they are often propositioned within 24 hours of being on the street. Uh, and there are, are pedophiles and traffickers looking for kids like that 
who might need a place to stay. And so it starts off with, hey, you look cold, you know, hop in the car and you can stay for free. And then three days later, he's like, hey, you didn't think this was for free, did you? And you have to pay me back. And oftentimes the trafficker may say, um, hey, uh, the way you're going to pay to stay here is through sexual services for me. And then eventually he ends up uh, pimping her out to his friends. And then b- before you know it, uh, he's selling her pretty regularly. That's, that's kind of like one common mechanism. Another common mechanism in the United States that's unique to the United States, I think, and maybe Europe is the boyfriend experience where girls, high school girls in particular, but but even college age and beyond are are lured into a relationship by a really attractive guy that seems legitimate, you know, and uh, he gives her love in ways that maybe she's been missing and uh, affirmation that she's not getting in other places. And uh, at some point in the relationship, and this can be months, I mean, I think a lot of these mechanisms, uh, girls believe uh, this guy really loves me because he's been texting with me for months, you know, but at some point he'll say, hey, let's run away together. Let's go to another state. And she gets in the car and all the, the protection mechanisms that she had from a new, from her family are kind of gone at that point. You know, she gets mm. in that car, they drive across the border and she's, she's either raped or uh, has to start turning tricks. Um, and even at the beginning phases, we've seen that sometimes they'll start down that path because the boyfriend's like, Hey, we don't have any money and this is a way you could help. And she kind of finds herself doing this behavior that she would never dream of doing. Yeah. Um, but she ends up in that place because of this place of love. And before, and here, I need to say this most, uh, maybe not most, a lot of people that are sucked into human trafficking aren't aware of it. They, they, they can't really articulate their slavery. Mm. Uh, what they know is, Hey, I made some choices that were complicit to the situation I'm in right now. Mm-hmm. I chose to get in the car. I chose to take a job. Yeah, the job's not what I thought it was, but the, you know, I'm I'm kind of guilty in some aspects of the of the situation I'm in. And traffickers exploit that too. Uh, we did a case a few years ago where really young girls were were kind of on an online chat situation, and uh, the trafficker, the guy at the time, they thought that that he loved them, and he offered to get them a, a free tattoo. You know, uh, but in a secret hidden place because their moms wouldn't want them to have a tattoo. And it was this whole mechanism of exploitation where this trafficker paid the tattoo artist to take a photo of the location of this tattoo. Mm. And then he took that photo and leveraged it uh, to exploit these girls and said, I'm going to show this tattoo to your mom and your friends if you don't do what I want, for example. And they and these girls are young, you know, and they're afraid and they end up uh, not knowing how to get out of this situation. So they, they concede to this, uh, type of abuse. And then they're the, 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 the rabbit hole just goes deeper and deeper for these kids. They don't know how to get out. And, but we see those things happen in the United States. Um, and then kind of the third thing that we've seen here, um, are cases where, uh, you know, uh, a, a trafficker will, will exploit some type of financial need. Uh, one case was like a bail bonds agency um, where girls couldn't afford to take out the bail bond or, or when they skip bail. And so to pay it back, they had to turn tricks to kind mm. of pay off their debt. So it's very similar in that it's debt bondage, but that was happening here in the United States. Wow. A lot of these escort services as well, you know, what you think is a knowing and willing prostitute may not be that at all. 
um, the pimps don't have to show their face, right? Because um, it's all done online. And you assume that the girl really wants to be involved. We've heard of cases in Vegas. You know, a lot of these girls, there's a lot of prostitutes in Las Vegas, but not all of them are there by choice. And how would you know as a client if you didn't ask deeper questions and have a heart for their safety yeah. um, instead of just having a heart to go have cheap sex, right? So those those are the things we're seeing here in the United States. Um, how dangerous is social and, and they're media? Significant. It's incredibly dangerous. Um, you know, when I was a kid, we, we just had chat rooms, online chat rooms. And even, even back when I was a kid, you got on those online chat rooms and you don't know who you're talking to. You yep. just don't. And it's the same game. It's the same game. Pedophiles love to portray themselves as something other than they are. And, and they'll do that same thing here in the United States where they'll, they'll eventually lead uh, a victim down this path of sending some amount of private information or a photo of themselves that might be inappropriate. And then they'll leverage that as a threat against these kids. So parents, please know what your kids are, are, are doing and what apps they have. There's a lot of apps uh, that are put out as potentially harmful because pedophiles love to use them. Yeah. We were having a discussion. Uh, my daughter, again, she's 16 in She's interested in having an Instagram account, of course. You know, what 16-year-old wouldn't? Um, and I was talking to my wife about it. I'm, I'm not even on Instagram at this point, but um, I think social media is, it could be a very powerful, but also very dangerous. So we were discussing a, a friend of ours. Um, she works for an organization that's kind of, um, they do education for apps and kids. And so she looks young. She has three kids. She looks younger and she went with law enforcement, opened up three accounts, posing at three different age ranges. And one, I think, was like 11, one was 14, then one was 17. And nothing sexual. She just posts pictures, opened these accounts, and out of nowhere, blasted with DMs from guys on every age range, all the way down to 11 years old, sending them inappropriate pictures. If you could just use your imagination um, of what a normal 11 year old or 14 year old or 17 year old would post on Instagram. And it's a shame that parents don't have an awareness and realization of the disgusting people who are out there who have access to your kids. And so what we've seen here locally, it's been a big issue because we have NASCAR, you know, there's big events that happen close to where I'm at in Charlotte. And typically what we've seen and, and friends I've had who work in anti-human trafficking stateside. And what they've communicated to me is when you have an area that is a high traffic area where a lot of people come for events or sporting, whatever, we have a huge mall, which is actually the biggest destination for North Carolina close to here. These guys will lure, they'll develop a relationship, lure these girls to one of these destinations. And like that, they're gone. We've had cases like that 10 minutes from where I'm at right now. So parents, if you're listening to this, just because you're in America does not mean that your kids are safe, right? So you have to wake up and you have, I would encourage you to go. If your kids have social media, freaking get on their phones and go through their stuff. Know their passwords and lock that stuff down. Um, not that you need to be terrified or scared, but you need to be aware. You need to be educated. And um, it's amazing that we have people like Matt who are on the, on the front lines um, you know, of course, bringing awareness, but also rescuing 
these girls and these boys. Um, so Matt, what would be any last words of wisdom or anything that you want to leave us with before we, we wrap this up? Yeah. Um, you know, I think for, for problems like human trafficking and, uh, and other kind of poverty based social issues, it, they, they kind of feel overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I think they overwhelm us oftentimes to the point where we're, we're paralyzed and we don't know what to do. What can I do? Uh, you know, for, for my story, um, I decided to, to start a nonprofit that is full of investigators and we go undercover and we find these kids. That's not for everybody, but everybody actually can do something. And I like to, you know, nobody really took my hand and told me what to do. I had to kind of figure that out on my own. But mm -hmm. there's so much that can be done here in the United States, even from an advocacy perspective, kind of that awareness making perspective. Um, of course, you know, there's lots of nonprofits and I'm one of them that are fueled on financial donations. We have to have those to send out the mercenary army for somebody else's child. It doesn't work any other way. So there's financial contributions. Um, a lot of people have skills and traffic and funnels. You guys have done this for us. You're like, look, we're highly talented and skilled at this one thing. How can we help? How can we leverage our knowledge on marketing right. to support the exodus road? And that's a conversation we're in dialogue about. But I, I would say that that's not just for business owners, although it is, it's for every human on the planet. If we could really rise up with love in our hearts for our communities and our neighbors um, and watch out for each other and not be afraid to like say, hey, are you okay? Yeah. Are you doing okay? You know, I'll see you here on the street corner. Is there anything I can do to help? Uh, what can I do to help? That That's really the, the heartbeat of the Exodus Road. And that should be all of our heartbeats in this fight uh, against such an overwhelming thing. But if we if we really kind of uh, bond together and fight this together, the, the impact could be exponential. And we are shaping our, the future that we are leaving for our kids, right? Yeah. Whatever we allow to exist today as adults and as participants in civil society, whatever we allow, whatever we ignore will be the thing that will touch our kids in generations to come. Yep. When we're retired and sitting on the front porch, these are the problems that we didn't fix mm -hmm. that they're going to be left with. And it's just not what I want for my kids. And so I think my closing, my closing statement would be, Hey, rise up with me. Um, and I'm nothing that special. I'm an ordinary guy. We, we have a mantra here at the Exodus road that rescue is in the hands of the ordinary. And oftentimes we, we wait for law enforcement to do it because it's their job. Or we wait for Liam Neeson or Jason Bourne or some superhero to swoop in and, and do everything that we, we, we want done. Uh, but, but the truth, guys, is that we actually are the ones who will usher in freedom for those enslaved. Mm -hmm. And we need law enforcement. We need governments to do their part. But it's I'm someone's neighbor. I'm in someone's sphere of influence. I'm in a community and I'm participating in that. And what I allow to exist that is un unhealthy for the community is partly my fault. Uh, I didn't cause it, but I allowed it. And so I would call out to all everybody listening to rise up and take up justice as a, as, as a part of the legacy you want to live, uh, leave for your family and, and, and future generations. Awesome. If you guys are interested in finding out more about the Exodus Road, you can go to their website, theexodusroad.com. We also um, will have a donate page, trafficandfunnels.com slash give. Um, we'll have them linked there as well. Um, I encourage you guys to, to go check them out, trafficandfunnels.com slash give. Of course, do your due diligence, but go ahead and just get off your wallet and 
send them some money, whatever you can do. Um, because again, these guys are on the front lines and this is the stuff that really matters. And I think, uh, you know, that we will be judged for how we handle things like this. And, um, yeah, so this is really important. And of course we, we appreciate any contribution that you guys make. So Matt, thanks for your time, man. Thanks for what you guys do. We really appreciate it. And, uh, we'll have you back. Thanks so much. I appreciate it guys. Hey everybody, Chris here. I just want to say thanks for your time listening to this podcast. This is a topic that is near and dear to our hearts here at Traffic and Funnels. So uh, this is a great organization and Matt, what they're doing there is pretty incredible. And it's an amazing opportunity for all of us to get involved um, in some form or fashion. So highly encourage you. We've set up a giving page that we, of course, are giving money from Traffic and Funnels. And I highly encourage you guys to consider uh, supporting this organization in the work that they're doing. Go ahead and head over to trafficandfunnels.com slash give and check that out right now. Thanks for listening. For more from Chris and Taylor, visit trafficandfunnels.com and get a free gift just for being a subscriber. That's trafficandfunnels.com.